Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our wrap of the week's political news. There's so much to talk about this week. Hillary Clinton's email server, Trump on Twitter, Obama on the campaign trail. We'll also talk VPs a bit. Trump is thought to announce his pick next week. And we must spend some time discussing two more fatal shootings involving police officers and black men. Of course, we'll end the show with listener mail and can't let it go when we all share one thing we just can't stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I'm a White House correspondent, and I cover the campaign. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. So the theme for the week was basically, if you are a politician, never tweet, never email, don't think you get it because you don't. Really? 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 That was the theme? Okay. Yeah. The theme for anybody is never tweet. Never tweet. Never tweet. Delete your account. Maybe that's it. Delete your account, but don't delete your emails? Oh, too much, too we soon. We need to monitor, though. I mean, Twitter is important to monitor stuff, even though it can be a the news is there. dark yeah. kind of no, place. I'm not That's where the we news should delete our accounts. I'm saying some other people oh, should delete oh. their accounts. Yeah. So we're talking about Trump's Star of David tweet, or he just said it's a plain old star. We will get to that. But also, FBI Director James Comey said this week that Hillary Clinton was, quote, extremely careless in her use of multiple private email servers during her time as Secretary of State. He also said that she didn't break any laws and didn't intentionally cover things up. Uh, We had an episode on all of those details earlier this week. Domenico, you were saying this week that Clinton in all of this is really, really lucky to be running against (laughs) Donald Trump. Explain that. Well, I mean, the thing is, she would be the most disliked presidential candidate in American history were it not for one person, Donald Trump. Who was more disliked. Who is more disliked and happens to be the person she's running against. And for all the complaining people want to do, whether they're supporters or opponents of Hillary Clinton, elections are choices. And you have to decide between one person or the other. And Donald Trump's unfavorable ratings are something like 70% in some polls. And when you have the FBI director coming out and just thwacking you, saying that you know it was a really bad idea to put you know, not only a server, but servers. Yeah, that she uh, possibly compromised state secrets. Mm-hmm. That that there were potentially classified, if not top secret, email chains. You know, and one of the big problems politically that it presents is, sure, .gov email addresses have been hacked, okay? It's not the most secure system. But the onus is then on the government. The onus is not on you. You put a server in your basement, now it's your responsibility. And everyone can point to you if there's a problem. If Hillary is lucky to have Trump as her opponent, isn't Trump in a way lucky to have Hillary as his opponent, too? Like he has had, by many measures, a pretty bad campaign. But Hillary keeps giving him gifts that are email server gate, right? Yeah, well, if he could take the gifts and turn them into something. Mara Liason had this great line where she said that, uh, you know, uh, he's never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> Donald Trump has found a way to step on basically every single bad story that Hillary Clinton has. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, he actually tweeted and said, I'm not going to announce this thing because I want to just like lean back and let Hillary Clinton have a bad news day. Uh -uh, uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. Couldn't do it. That lasted like three hours. It started well. But I mean, when you try to imagine what a different opponent, a generic Republican opponent who has, you know, maybe more political experience might have done in this case, you know, would have bought more ads, for example. Or would, like any ads. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, would have, you know, there's there's just when you think about the gulf between what could be and what is, it's it's kind of astounding. Oh, yeah. And that's one way it's measurable. Yeah. So the FBI director, James Comey, the guy who made the big announcement about no charges for Clinton, he was talking about this whole issue again on Capitol Hill this morning. Because yes. Congress asked him to now? What is it? This keeps going. Yes, this absolutely keeps going. And based on the testimony today, I predict this will keep, keep, keep going. <laughs> so what happened this morning? So uh, James Comey was called before the House Oversight Committee. The committee members, um, led by Jason Chaffetz, who is a Republican from Utah, he started off the hearing saying... FBI director, I believe there's a double standard. It sure looks like there's a double standard that Hillary Clinton is getting away with something that other people wouldn't get away with. Mm -hmm. Then Trey Gowdy, who was the chairman of the Benghazi committee, who's also on this oversight committee, comes on and, and asks Comey questions. And he really gets at the inconsistencies between what Hillary Clinton has said publicly about her email arrangement and what the FBI investigation found. I think we have a little clip of that. Secretary Clinton said she used just one device. Was that true? 
she used multiple devices during the four years uh, of her term as Secretary of State? Secretary Clinton said all work-related emails were returned to the State Department. Was that true? No, we found work-related emails, thousands, that were not returned. So, so he's saying she lied. Well, no. actually, he's yeah. not. And this is, oh. this is really interesting. So all of this is going to be in a Republican ad. I think it already is. Uh, you know, Gowdy just point by point by point prosecuted this thing in the court of public opinion. But Jason Chaffetz, the chairman of the committee, asked Comey if Hillary Clinton lied. And I, and I want to play that for you. Did Hillary Clinton lie? To the FBI? We have no basis to conclude she lied to the FBI. Did she lie to the public? That's a question I'm not qualified to answer. I can speak about what she mm-hmm. said to the FBI. So the interesting thing about this hearing is that there was very bad stuff for Hillary Clinton, like this gouty exchange that is going to wind up in ads. And then there was very good stuff for Hillary Clinton, like James Comey answering the question of, why he didn't believe charges were called for in this case, and whether there's a double standard. We did not find evidence sufficient to establish that she knew she was sending classified information beyond a reasonable doubt to meet that, the, uh, the intent standard. But like I said, I understand why people are con- confused by the whole discussion. I get that. But you know what would be a double standard? If she were prosecuted for gross negligence. So there you go. I mean, it, the intent standard is is difficult to kind of unravel. But, and, but that's what he's getting at. The difference between the perception and whether or not she intended to lie. And, you know, you start getting into that. I mean, uh, Congressman Mark Walker, who's, a, who's from North Carolina, kind of um, surmised what we might see happening after this, which is I think you're going to see a lot of Republicans try to say that Hillary Clinton perjured herself in her initial Benghazi testimony. That really long 11 12 hours, hour, 11 hour, yeah. um, where he said that there are three points there that she said that she didn't turn over all her work related emails, that the attorneys went through every single email and that nothing was marked classified on those emails. So that's going to get litigated, uh, and the Clinton campaign is already out there almost live tweeting with a response to all of those. So what are they saying? Well, part of it is when you look at the marked classified emails, they point to the fact that there were two emails that were marked classified that the State Department later said were marked mistakenly. And then the other emails in question did not have a a header on it that said classified. It only had like a small C somewhere embedded. And so Comey said that it, it is reasonable to believe that Clinton didn't know that they were classified. But big picture, all of this stuff is just, you know, it. Most people are not going to view this through the lens of like which each specific thing. You're already seeing Hillary Clinton in polling shown to be a majority of people saying that she's not honest and trustworthy. And again, were she not running against Donald Trump, this would be a potentially very problematic thing for her. Well, but let's let's be real here, though. I mean. I genuinely want to know how many Americans have not already made their mind up about this. I mean, how much does this change anybody's opinion? Or, I mean, and, you know, you could say this about a lot of the controversies or fake controversies that come up in this election at this point. The people who like Hillary Clinton, like her, I, I really think you know they they they'll say know, it was a mistake. I would think they might be likely to say you know yeah she she didn't do anything wrong she or well, she it, did, was a, it was a mistake and I think right. it was a witch hunt yeah, all well, of this around right. her. And, whereas if you don't like Hillary Clinton, right, she's not trustworthy. There's a double standard. Yeah. I was interviewing voters yesterday at a Hillary Clinton event. Now, admittedly, they like Hillary Clinton, but they were like. She's an older woman. She doesn't understand the technology. Like, I don't blame her. Yes, it was a mistake. She shouldn't have done it. It was dumb. But whatever. Let's move on. And and the Republicans do run a risk of getting out over their skis, of taking it too far. And, And this hearing is totally their prerogative. Like, here's the great thing about politics, right? House Republicans are in the majority. They can call a hearing. They can bring the FBI director. That's their prerogative. That's politics. And they can go ahead and do it. They run the risk of going too far. But there you go. And then on the other side, Hillary Clinton can ride on Air Force One with President Obama. That's his prerogative. That's the power of incumbency. Yeah. So the email news broke Tuesday while Clinton was preparing to fly on Air Force One with President Obama to campaign together, both of them in North Carolina. And they did not mention this whole email thing at all. Yep. Nope. Nope. They didn't talk about it. Not at all. It was just love and nostalgia. I have run my last campaign. 
And I couldn't be prouder of the things we've done together, but I'm ready to pass the baton. And I know that Hillary Clinton is going to take it. And I know she can run that race, the race to create good jobs and better schools and safer streets and a safer world. And that's why I'm fired up. You know, the whole time I was watching this, I was thinking, you know why he's fired up? He's just happy he doesn't have to do this. <laughs> like, he's, he's having fun out there, and you can tell. He, he gets to campaign on someone else's behalf. He gets to stay out of the fray. And well, Hillary Clinton, though, has said that she's not a, quote, natural campaigner, which was an amazing statement for somebody to say who wants to be president of the United yeah. States, uh, and, and cited Barack Obama and her husband, Bill Clinton, about how they love to campaign. Very different kinds of campaigners. Her husband, yes. much more of an extrovert. Obama, a known introvert. But you saw the difference between President Obama <laughs> and Hillary <laughs> Clinton on that stage. And, you know, you know, you just the thing is with with Hillary Clinton and for all of her potential problems as a candidate and with the email server and all that stuff, she is going to have the highest of high profile Democratic surrogates trying to make up for that with her. You're going to have, you know, Elizabeth Warren trying to shore up the left and be that attack dog against Donald Trump, even if she's not picked as vice president, which is most likely not going to happen. And you're going to have President Obama trying to win over. Remember that Obama coalition, the yeah. first uh, president since Eisenhower to win 51 percent of the electorate twice in a row. Yeah. So it's rare for a two term president to campaign for their potential successor, right? It is so rare and surprisingly rare, actually. Uh, Ron Elving and I took a deep dive back uh, about a month ago to see just how far would this go. And we went back 100 years and couldn't find ever a president who campaigned strongly for his successor. And I wound up writing it up this week and went through some of the details of just why. I mean, a lot of these people, uh, presidents have been unpopular. If you think about uh, LBJ and Hubert Humphrey, uh, where he was unpopular because of the Vietnam War. If you look at George W. Bush, he really didn't campaign, obviously, strongly for John McCain. He was at like 31% he, approval yeah, at was, this time. Was, oh, yeah. And then, you know, Al Gore, a lot of people think, made the mistake of distancing himself from Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton's popularity actually never went below 55%, according to Gallup, in the year 2000, and wound up leaving office with an even higher... Percent. Right? That's right. Higher than that. And you had Al Gore kind of skittish about going out with Bill Clinton because of the Lewinsky scandal. And you go all the way back in history and it's just very difficult to find. Well, yeah. I, what I found fascinating about that story, though, is that there is this pattern of two term presidents not campaigning for their successor. But there's not a pattern to why. It just right. seems to happen. <laughs> yeah. By circumstance. All the like, you know, hey, there's a sex scandal. Hey, you know, this president is super unpopular. You know, it, there's always some sort of a reason they right. don't do it. It, but it's not that it's not a thing that a two-term president doesn't want to do necessarily. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, you look at um, one one point that people will argue is Reagan because Reagan did endorse George H.W. Uh, Bush, his vice president. But the only event that he really held for him was this uh, black tie event. I went back and read some of the accounts of it at the time. And he gets up there and he says, everyone should know that we are for George Bush. But what rhymes with Rush instead of Bush? Bush. Yeah. So it was so, one of those things that you thought Reagan was not going to be out there strongly campaigning. Yeah. So it, Clinton and Obama together on Air Force One. We got a lot of listener questions this week about who pays for that kind of trip when Obama is campaigning. Is using Air Force One to go to a campaign event allowed, et cetera? We have an answer for that from our own Scott Horsley, right? We do have an you answer. You want to share that with us? Yeah. So he says that the estimated cost of operating Air Force One is $206,337 per hour. An hour. Oh, my God. An hour. So what Scott says is that because this trip to Charlotte was a purely political trip, 100 percent political, there was no official business as part of it. Though Obama did go out for barbecue after the speech, but that was not official either because Hillary Clinton was there. It will be reimbursed at 100 percent. 
By the campaign. By the campaign. Or the DNC. Or the DNC. But it gets murkier when it's mixed business. And this often this question often comes up because of presidents who campaign for their own reelection. You know, when George oh, W. Bush yeah. ran yeah. in two thousand four and when Barack Obama ran twenty twelve, they there was always the question of who pays for Air Force One, be are taxpayers paying for his reelection? Well, they wind up reimbursing for the share. Uh, of the event being political versus the event being business. I don't know if going to, uh, he didn't go to 12 Bones this time over in Asheville, but 12 Bones is one of his favorite places and is really good. I've been there. I don't like North Carolina barbecue because the pulled pork vinegar sauce. <laughs> oh, Why are you yeah. going to put meat in vinegar? I like the I'm vinegar. I'm sorry. It's good. So, Tam, the other big campaign event this week for Clinton was in Atlantic City. You were there. Yes, and uh, I would characterize this as trolling. Oh, Just straight okay, up okay, trolling. okay. She had this event her podium was set up so that right in the camera shot right behind her were the faded letters where there used to be a sign that said trump plaza we're standing in front of the old trump plaza casino and hotel donald trump once predicted it will be the biggest hit yet now it's abandoned You can just make out the word Trump, where it used to be written in flashy lights. So what Clinton was saying in this Atlantic City speech really seems to be a bit of a page out of the Mitt Romney playbook from 2012. That is the the playbook against Mitt Romney. You remember there was this ad about a Bain Capital company named Ampad that bought an Indiana uh, paper factory and then shut it down and that jobs were lost from that. Well, Hillary Clinton is also is this time pointing the finger at a different businessman, Donald Trump, and saying that he personally bilks people out of their money, that he personally has cost jobs. Now, we should point out that Donald Trump hasn't had a controlling interest in any of the casinos that bear his name in Atlantic City for many years now. Uh, He only had about a 10 percent interest uh, until earlier this year when the, um, the the management company for the casinos came out of bankruptcy and into the arms of the billionaire investor Carl Icahn, and then Trump lost his final 10% in the casinos. It is a very long and messy story about bankruptcies and controlling interests and investors and all of this. But Clinton's larger point was, you know, Donald Trump has bragged about, well, I went into bankruptcy to restructure the debt and I came out a winner. And those investors, those banks, I showed the banks kind of a thing. And he's called himself mm. the king of debt. Right. Which right. Is, but to the bigger point, I mean, and to Danielle's point earlier about the Clinton campaign wanting to open the Romney playbook, so to speak, you know, a super PAC that was supporting the Obama campaign in 2012 ran these devastatingly brutal ads against Mitt Romney. You had one guy saying that Romney had him building his own coffin because he had them build a stage. And at that point, the company was going to be shut down. Mm -hmm. The Clinton campaign today released a kind of similar ad against Donald Trump with these stories that Donald Trump had cheapskated uh, people, uh, contractors, uh, plumbers, etc. And this was a guy uh, who was an architect brought in to build a golf club who says that Trump shorted him. I went and I met with Mr. Trump in his office. And he said, you know, I really don't think I should pay anymore because I spent too much on this building. I had already accepted less than the total monies due to my firm. And he basically said he only wanted to pay me half of that amount. Mr. Trump's attorney said if I were to sue the Trump organization, I would probably get that money. But he made very clear to me that it was his job to make sure that it took me so long and so much money that I was probably wise to accept this very meager sum of money at the end of the day. One thing that's really fascinating to me, though, is that you have the imprimatur of the campaign doing this, because if anything about this story doesn't check out, it's going to be the campaign's responsibility. Normally, you let something like a super PAC on the outside go and make these really harsh, yeah. tough claims, because if something doesn't quite check out from them, then you have some plausible deniability. Yes. But I also got to point out, there have been some really long articles that have chronicled lots of this in the USA Today uh, who else? The USA Post. Today, Washington right. Post, AP, yeah. New York Times. So there's been digging. All right, so Tam, there's also news today, which you found out, that Bernie Sanders is expected to endorse Hillary Clinton on Tuesday at an event in New Hampshire. Um, this is kind of a big deal, no? Yeah, no, and I've confirmed it with a couple of sources. This is not a done deal, but it is 
very likely to happen that in New Hampshire, Bernie Sanders will endorse Hillary Clinton. This matters for a couple of reasons. New Hampshire is a state that Sanders won handily in the primary. Yes, very bigly, as they say. And also, it is the state where, if you're, you know, sentimental, it's where Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in 2008 held their big coming together uh, yeah. event to in get unity. the in Unity, New Hampshire. Now, is this event going to be in Unity, New Hampshire? The campaign is not confirming where Hillary Clinton's planned event on Tuesday is going to happen, but um, I am I am angling for Second College Grant, New Hampshire. Okay. Which is the name of a town and also is sort of relevant to how this endorsement is coming together. Explain. Well, this week, Hillary Clinton announced this change in her college affordability yeah. proposal. And it's an expansion of it that brings her closer to Bernie Sanders. But not quite there. Not quite there. It's, a, it's an interesting splitting of the difference. So Sanders wanted free public college for all. Hillary Clinton said, I don't want to pay for Donald Trump's kids to go to college. She sort of mocked his plan in that way. And she was calling for uh, debt-free public college. Well, now she is saying if your family makes up to $125,000 a year, then she would eliminate college tuition. And at public schools. At public schools and and sources in the and sources familiar with the negotiations between the two campaigns say this this movement from Clinton was key in getting Sanders to move toward an endorsement. Now, the only thing that stands between now and Tuesday is this Democratic platform meeting in Orlando. Could something happen there that throws a wrench in this, or is this pretty much done? Well, that's an interesting question. My sources tell me that this is still a sensitive situation. Okay. <laughs> and 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 obviously there the big thing there in between is this convention is this meeting in Orlando. Um there are disagreements about the Trans-Pacific Partnership yeah. and a couple of other things. I mean, I guess it could all blow up, but the more times that sources confirm that Sanders is expected to endorse Hillary Clinton, seems like a close to done deal. Yep. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork? What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. Hey guys, before we get back to the show, if you're looking for a new podcast, check out Hidden Brain, the NPR podcast about social science you can apply to your everyday life. Hear about how being busy affects your motivation, the science of deception, or the downsides of getting personal online. Find the Hidden Brain podcast with NPR's Shankar Vedantham at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Okay, back to the show. All right, so this could have been a great week for Donald Trump, but he suffered a lot of self-inflicted wounds instead, to say the least. Yeah, you think? (laughs) So let's travel back in time long, long ago. I love that. That. Was, that, was that like the ghost of Christmas past? Go, the oh, ghost of Tamara Keith. Oh. So let's travel back in time long, long ago to a quiet Saturday morning during this past 4th of July holiday weekend when Donald Trump tweeted out the tweet. Who can talk about the tweet? Danielle? What were the Hillary, words on it? Well, so it's, Hillary, it's a photo of Hillary Clinton superimposed over a pile of money. And alongside of it, there is a six-pointed star in red. And in white lettering, it says, most corrupt candidate ever. And it said history made. Right. It said history made in the Hillary font. And so as soon as this thing came out, lots of folks said, hey, this is anti-Semitic. And then there were some reports that show that that graphic 
came from a website that's frequented by white supremacists. Mm -hmm. So Mike.com actually dug into this because that tweet was deleted very quickly. And And Trump later on actually said that he uh, wished it wasn't deleted, which is kind of an amazing thing. He doubled down on it. Uh, But it was replaced with a circle over the star so that it was no longer viewable. It wound up being a couple days of the Trump campaign trying to manage their way out of this. But Mike.com had looked at uh, where this came from. This was a meme that came from a supporter that had also been populated on some alt-right white supremacist Corners of the internet. And usually what they found is that usually the Trump campaign will attribute which um, supporter it came from. And in this case, instead, they had uh, emblazoned over it Fox News poll and it didn't reveal where where it actually came from. So then the big question is, did Trump and Trump's team know what they were doing with this or was it totally an accident? And here is a question that dovetails on that, which is like, seriously, they're not creating their own memes. Hillary Clinton's campaign, Bernie Sanders campaign, there's staff, that other does it. campaigns, yes. all campaigns have people. I mean, even like low level people who can easily make a meme. You don't have to go and lift it off of the Internet. Well, and you had uh, Donald Trump's campaign, uh, the guy who does social media for him, defend it. And it was an odd statement because it made it sound like he had picked out the star uh, from Microsoft clip art or Mm -hmm. something. Yeah. But I mean, one thing that I found fascinating about this, because Domenico mentions that the Trump campaign doubled down. Right. He said, you know, we shouldn't have deleted it. But I, I know I saw a lot of commentators. I heard a lot of people, you know, even in my life saying, you know, why did he not apologize? Or I mean, I remember Morning Joe all of last week was you know, just apologize. But he never dude. apologizes. That's the, right. like, he never does. But, that. but that's exactly what I'm saying. This fits with the sort of anti-political correctness idea. This idea of why are you offended? Like if you if you get offended, that's a bad thing. You just need to roll with it. One yeah. thing. And one thing we should point out. You know, Donald Trump's daughter Ivanka is married to a man named Jared Kushner, who's involved in his campaign. Jared Kushner is Jewish. Ivanka converted to Judaism. Their their children are Jewish. Trump's grandchildren. And Kushner actually wrote an op-ed in uh, the New York Observer defending Donald Trump, but also calling the use of the star careless, which is different than the tone that Trump, you know, out of his own mouth, talked about it at at his event last night. This all happens in a week where Trump's campaign is supposed to be expanding. They're raising some real money now. Like, this was supposed to be a good week for him on several levels, right? Oh, totally. It was supposed to be a good week for him because Hillary Clinton was <laughs> Hillary Clinton was like in a world of hot water. We have the FBI director saying essentially that things she told the public yeah. were not the same as yeah. what the FBI found. And yet Donald Trump found a way to let this star story and, and let it linger. Mm-hmm. Let and it linger for days and days out. and days and days. And then even last, last night, night. So last night, Trump tweeted a photo of some merchandise from the film <laughs> Frozen. It didn't look like official Disney swag, more like a, a kind of Times Square bootleg thing. But it also had a star that looked like a star of David. Uh, and Trump tweeted this and said, see, look, and he ended the tweet with hashtag frozen. Like, <laughs> what was that go. about, Domenico? He's just doubling down. I mean, what, once again, though, how many people's minds does this change? I mean, I right, you're going to see narrative change after narrative change. I, I can't <laughs> I, I can't let go of this. You know, all of all of these things happen. Yeah, poll numbers shift a bit. But I mean, the people are firmly embedded in their partisan positions. At least a lot of people are, you know. In spite of all this, Trump did manage to attack Clinton on the email saga. We have some tape of that from this week, I think. It's an incredible thing. The system is rigged, but we're still happy to be together, right? It's totally rigged. We now know that she lied to the country when she said she did not send classified information on her server. She lied. The remarkable thing is, he, I mean, James Comey threw up a softball. All yeah. Donald Trump had to do was hit it, which he did. And he did but at then, some points. But then he, he, he went for extra bases. Mm-hmm. He then accused the attorney general, Loretta Lynch, who actually had nothing to do with the FBI's recommendations, accused her of accepting a bribe from Hillary Clinton because he read in the New York Times or, I, or saw it on TV that Hillary Clinton was maybe thinking about having Loretta Lynch stay on as attorney general. I mean, the attorney general sitting there saying, you know, if I get Hillary off the hook, I'm going to have four more years or eight more years. 
But if she loses, I'm out of a job. It's a bribe. And then he goes on to say some nice things about Saddam Hussein. Which he has said before. Let's play that tape. Saddam Hussein was a bad guy, right? He was a bad guy. Really bad guy. But you know what he did well? He killed terrorists. He did that so good. They didn't read him the rights. They didn't talk. They were a terrorist. It was over. Then there was the maybe one of the most, I think, surreal uh, Donald Trump speech moments when he, you know, started railing against insects. The Democrats. Ooh, there was a mosquito. I don't want mosquitoes around me. (laughs) I don't like mosquitoes. (laughs) I don't like those mosquitoes. I never did. Hashtag I don't like mosquitoes. You know, that is why some portion of America loves that man. He's relatable. Who likes mosquitoes? I don't like mosquitoes. Anyway, okay, so we also know this week two people who will not be Donald Trump's vice president. Uh, He's set to announce that next week. But two senators, Bob Corker and Joni Ernst, have said they don't want to do it. What does this mean? Look, Corker and Ernst were two people that that probably would have benefited uh, Donald Trump. I mean, having someone like Bob Corker, I think it's a real problem for him actually not having Corker on the list anymore because Corker is somebody who is seen as reasonable yet conservative, uh, you know, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, an important person. Unfortunately, superficially, you know, you looked at the two of them on stage together and it just didn't look like it worked. You had Donald Trump who's really tall and Bob Corker who's short. <laughs> oh, and it just now, it now. was a picture that went around. That and it's wasn't not... Corker's issue. Well, Corker well, was on the short although, list. I'm just, uh-huh. oh, although I, I would add, in terms of the data, it didn't look like Joni Ernst would have helped him that much, is, is my personal opinion. I mean, by and large, when you have a presidential candidate who is less experienced in Washington, so for example, a governor or you know a freshman senator like Barack Obama, they tend to pick running mates who have a lot more Washington experience, like someone like Joe Biden, who has been in the Senate for a very long time. That's what they tend to do. So this is one way that the the Joni Ernst pick may not have made sense anyway. She is a freshman senator from Iowa. She doesn't have a whole lot of Washington experience and therefore wouldn't have balanced out Donald Trump that much. Can we also just remind our listeners who Joni Ernst is? She's a senator. She's a senator from Iowa, but we're going to have to play the clip of... She's her, well known for, of the ad that propelled her to fame. National so, fame. Yes. And let's, Iowa let's knows do it. this. I'm Joni Ernst. I grew up castrating hogs on an Iowa farm. Oh, I remember so this one. I, I remember this one. I'll oh, know Lord. how to cut pork. Joni Ernst, mother, soldier, conservative. My parents taught us to live within our means. It's time Wait to force Washington to do the same. To cut wasteful spending, repeal Obamacare, and balance the budget. I'm Joni Ernst, and I approve this message because Washington's full of big spenders. Let's make them squeal. Ooh. Ooh. Fact check. As a woman who has helped with castrating pigs, uh-huh. they really they really do squeal when oh. you castrate them. Uh, it's true. For oh, obvious wow. reasons. Well, yes. I'm You're going to make you know. me feel guilty about the bacon I had this morning for so, breakfast. Oh, boy. But the thing is, like, Joni Ernst in that way doesn't make a lot of sense either because you're talking about another person who would bring a lot of attention. And that's always the issue with a, with a uh, vice president that does matter is the first rule is do no harm. And too many of these uh, vice presidential picks that we've been talking about can create problems. It's why I thought Carker would have been a great pick for Trump because he would be the most on message. Yeah. Right. And um, so if we're talking about Washington experience, you know, who does have a lot of Washington experience, Newt Gingrich, and he is of course mentioned a lot in conjunction with Trump these days. Former Speaker of the House and Donald Trump uh, said the other night, well, if it is Newt, he would definitely win that VP debate. Uh, Newt Gingrich is a noted a really debater. Good he is yeah. a good talker. All right, let's VP speculate for Clinton. Any new speculation? Look, I think that if you're talking about first do no harm as the big thing, you know, you look at Tim Kaine. He's the obvious favorite for the job because he's been in office. He's stood on a debate stage. He's been very on message with the Clinton campaign, you know, and I know he's a white man. So he doesn't, you know, bring the kind of diversity to a ticket that a lot of people talk about wanting. But in that way, that might be the kind of diversity that she's looking for. Yeah. He's also a white man who is fluent in Spanish. That's true. Yeah. But she's struggled with white men exactly. you know, as a as a demographic. And, you know, I mean, we forget that Obama picked a white man and that worked out just fine. And he still managed to be a, a historic first. Right. It's it's not like Hillary Clinton picking a white man would be. Yeah. And there's crazy. Da- and it there's, wouldn't be unprecedented. Yes. Uh. And there are dangers for her to pick 
uh, say like an Elizabeth Warren, yeah. somebody who could overshadow her and right. somebody who introduces some risk into the campaign. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But I, I, we we can say that at this point, we have to assume that the campaigns on, on both sides are vetting their vice presidents right now. And if you see someone on stage with one of the candidates, um, it's a test run. It's yeah. automatic. It's an audition. Yeah. And she really does seem to like Labor Secretary Tom Perez. Uh, they seem to get along really well. And uh, he fires up labor. The only downside I would say for him is you've never seen him on a debate stage. Yeah. And that could be potentially problematic. I also think this idea that she needs to pick a Latino to get that demographic might not hold up. She's going to do a pretty good job with that demo in part because what Trump has been saying about Mexicans and, and Latinos. Latinos more generally. Yeah. Sure. All right. Before we go to listener mail, we have to discuss two videos that came to light this week showing the graphic killings of two black men by police officers this week. Uh, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, one in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, the other in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where the governor there asked the Department of Justice to open an investigation into what happened. These videos are not getting easier to watch or any less tragic, and there's been a lot of them now. Uh, We have some audio from one of those videos. Philando Castile's girlfriend was in the car with him when he was shot. She took a Facebook Live video soon after those shots were fired. And just to warn our listeners, this is some very disturbing tape that might not be suitable for children. Stay with me. We got pulled over for a busted tail light in the back. And the police just, he's, he's, he's covered. He they killed my boyfriend. He's licensed. He's carried. To, he's licensed to carry. He was trying to get out his ID and his wallet out his um pocket, and he let the officer know that he was re- he had a firearm and he was reaching for his wallet, and the officer just shot him in his arm. We're waiting for a back. I will, sir. No worries. He just shot his arm off. We got pulled yeah. over on Larpener. I told him not to reach for it. I told him to get his hand out. He had, you told him to get his ID, sir, and his driver's license. Oh, my God. Please don't tell me he's dead. Please don't tell me my boyfriend just went like that. You know, this is a 10-minute video, and this woman manages to stay so composed. Uh, right. She's speaking with the cops, saying, yes, sir, no, sir. But it just, it's, it was rough to watch. And there was a kid. In the back there was seat a four-year-old in the backseat of the car. We say this video isn't suitable for children. There was a small child in the backseat of the car. Yeah. I mean, what you said about her very com- in a very composed manner talking to the cop, not only that, but she had the presence of mind to pull out her phone, videotape this, and narrate... What was going on. What had what she said had happened and what was going on. And this, you know, it's it's tragic. It's It's terribly sad to watch. It also underscores just how much... Us all walking around with these little video cameras has really raised the prominence of this issue of the way the police handle situations in the U.S. That now, perhaps for some people, it's an instinct. Cop pulls me over, pull out my phone. And it's gotten political. We've already seen a tweet from Hillary Clinton saying Black Lives Matter. We've seen a statement now from the president on the deaths of these two men. When incidents like this occur, there's a big chunk of our fellow citizenry that feels uh, as if because of the color of their skin, they are not being treated the same. And that hurts. And that should trouble all of us. What's interesting now is to see how these candidates for president talk about what needs to change to prevent these things. Um, You've seen proposals from Secretary Clinton, from Bernie Sanders. They talk about how to fix this from the macro level. But it seems that a lot of the change that activists want to see in regards to policing would have to happen at the local level, correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, you've you've seen uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders both during this campaign list things that they would like to see and sort of make... A bit more general statements on Hillary Clinton's part. She said she wants common sense reforms. Uh, she said she wants to end racial profiling and, you know, uh, provide better de-escalation training to cops and uh, that sort of thing. But that's not necessarily something that the president has any say over. Likewise, Bernie Sanders earlier this year, I believe it was in January, put out this sort of this four. He had sort of four points to this. He said, you know, he wants more police diversity. He wants cops to be demilitarized, get rid of sort of, you know, those 
weapons of war that a lot of them have. He wants, and he said that when anyone is killed by the police, he wants to have the attorney general investigate it, which which is a big, big. They don't have the manpower to do that. DOJ is not big enough, right? Right, but I mean, so you have a lot of ideas, but yeah, the the question, of course, is what the president can actually do. And where's Donald Trump on this? So I also poked around Donald Trump's website to see if he talks about any policy around police shootings, and I found none. Okay, one more quick break. We'll be right back with Listener Mail and Can't Let It Go. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from our sponsor, LearnVest. Did you know the average indebted American household has over $16,000 in credit card debt? And 31% of Americans have zero retirement savings. The good news is LearnVest is here to help. LearnVest is redefining financial planning by making it affordable and accessible to everyday Americans. When you work with LearnVest, you tell them what you want to accomplish with your money, and they'll create a customized financial plan to help you get there. To see a financial plan and get a $50 credit, go to LearnVest.com slash NPR politics. All right, time for some mail. Quick reminder to email us your questions or feedback at nprpolitics at npr.org. And maybe if you want to, record your question on your phone and send it to us there. Again, nprpolitics at npr.org. Bonus points if you make the recording fun. We'll listen and enjoy them so much, even if you don't hear them here. So thanks, and shout out to everyone who's writing in with their own political musical suggestions. You heard our episode on musicals and politics. We are definitely aware that we didn't hit all of the right musicals in that episode. Sorry about that. I, I guess it calls been. for a sequel. Yes, absolutely. Whoa, Danielle got really I, excited. Yes. <laughs> I have to say, I loved that right? that that episode. I have to say, you know, uh, Mandela's the it, best. It, oh yeah. It, yeah. It, in a in a uh, tough week, it it made me uh, it made me smile. It was a lot of fun. We're here to make you smile. Yeah. Thank thing. you. Yeah. All right. Uh, here's a good question from Travis, who emailed us. He says, "Quote: The narrative that this has been a particularly dark, nasty." parentheses, insert string of similar adjectives here, campaign is pretty well-worn ground in the media. My question is this. What are the lightest, happiest campaign moments you can think of from this one or from ye campaigns of old? Thanks. Good question. Who has one? I'll tell you what, from this campaign, what popped first into my mind was, if you remember, I believe it was July 2015, you had Donald Trump give out what was apparently Lindsey Graham's phone number. Lindsey Graham... Uh, senator from South Carolina, by the way, did a oh yeah the, he did a video. video of him destroying various cell phones <laughs> via various methods. And you know what? At least from the looks of my Twitter feed, both the liberals and the conservatives I follow, everybody thought this was funny. It was really well done. It was you know it was a rare moment of bipartisan consensus. It, it was quite funny. He did a great job. And of with leaning it. into something you know that was yeah pretend, you know he yeah, handled he, it really he handled well. Handled it well. Now, if I'm being more serious, I'm going to say, you know what, this may be the the year that the U.S. presidential field has looked the most like the U.S. Uh, populace. Huh. We had, you know, we had women, we had a black man, we had Latinos. I mean, it's it's it was starting, the most diverse field in history. That's it, true. Yeah, it's starting to look more like America. And you know what? That's little kids are seeing this. Little kids are seeing these people on TV debating. It's it maybe it's changing the paradigm for how we for the kinds of people that we expect to see behind those podiums. Yeah. I will say I saw some pretty happy Bernie Sanders moments. I was with him in the run-up to the primary in in, in California. In those last few days, he would make a lot of unannounced stops, like at a farmer's market or at an outdoor mall at Santa Monica Pier. And there was one moment, it was the Sunday before the primaries, he's at Santa Monica Pier with his grandkids and some family, and he rode the merry-go-round like with his grandkid. It was the cutest thing ever. Aww. We might be getting some cheer right now. You've been asking folks to sing, Tamara. Oh, I have. We have one, finally. (laughs) Yay! Dear NPR Politics, now that we know our presumptive nominee, why wait until November? Why not just vote next month to see who our next president will be? Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you, Rachel. That was Rachel. I like that. That was really good. Even though musicals lift your spirits and she sang and that was nice, there was an underlying dark message. Yes, she's basically saying, why is this election over with? But she wasn't pitchy. She was so, very much on pitch. I know. So basically, okay, why don't we just vote right after the conventions? We know who the people are at this point. Well, Rachel, we have to litigate this for three oh, no. more months. <laughs> <laughs> you just... So the thing is, actually... You got to sing it, Domenico. 
Do I have to sing it? Yeah. No. No, I don't. I don't have to sing. <laughs> but the the thing is that the that the, uh, the, the conventions actually used to be sort of a start of the yes. campaign. Yes. Not yes. the not the wedding reception that we see now, where you're waiting to see <laughs> yeah. the the dress that the nominee will be wearing. You know, not literally pantsuit. Whatever. Anyway, point is the the con- the convention used to be where the campaigns used to start, not where they ended. And that what we have now is we have this campaign that goes on a primary process that goes on even longer than a general election does. And so the three months after the after the convention are supposed to be the campaign. And that's the time where you see the actual nominees debate each other because that hasn't happened yet. But still, I mean, let's <laughs> let's let's get some perspective here. I mean, let's say that the campaign really did start during the conventions. OK, fine. Let's all think back to last October when the Canadians were going to have their election. They were about to have what was for them a long election, and it was 11 weeks long. Compare that to us when early last year we were already seeing candidates start to uh, come out of the woodwork. So, you know, even if we started at the conventions, we'd still have, you know, a pretty a pretty long process. Ted Cruz announced in March of 2015. I believe so. He was the first one. And I remember in what November of 2013 or October of oh 2013 I was in Iowa and he was giving a speech all right that's the mail which means it's time for can't let it go when we all share one thing we can't stop thinking about this week politics or otherwise Tamara you go first so yesterday President Obama delivered a, a speech where he said that you know how like a little while ago I said we were going to draw down the troops in Afghanistan well Actually, we're going to stick around and we're going to have a presence of about 8,400 troops in Afghanistan through the remainder of his presidency. Huh. And that is significant. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And and what I can't let go of is it, it did not come up on the campaign trail as far as I can tell. Yeah. Hillary Clinton didn't take any questions yesterday. She didn't talk about it. Her campaign didn't put out a statement about it. Donald Trump didn't talk about it. We ha- we have Americans a- don't talk about Americans it. Americans don't talk about it. We have a very significant forgotten war that is now going to drag on and it is not being debated in the campaign. Instead, we are talking about like stars and stuff. So like I don't know. Domenico, do you think that in a different cycle, a different year, this would have actually been a topic of discussion? <laughs> Well, one thing I was struck by is Danielle's chart that she put up on this yesterday because it showed how high the troop levels were in uh, 2010. We had almost 100,000 troops there. And then if you look at the very bottom at the very tail end of Danielle's post, you see this little blip of the 8,400 versus the 5,500 that he had said the president that they were going to leave. So it's not a huge difference. And if you couldn't maintain order and security and uh, you know make a country safe with 100,000 troops, what difference is 3,000 troops really going to make? And I, I think that that is the difficult thing. You had a president who was intent on ending two wars and wound up getting uh, having to ramp up in Afghanistan because of pressure from the Pentagon uh, and trying to try to find uh, bin Laden and Al Qaeda. So it's a I think it's a hard balance that this president has tried to walk. It's also, I think, pretty telling that, you know, you have that little blip between 5,500, 9,800, but that there are big arguments being had over the difference between 9,800, 8,400, 5,500. Like every soldier, every troop we send in, special forces or whatever, counts. And, you know, generals, the military personnel in Afghanistan, you know, have said, we need everybody we can get. We need to train Afghanistan security forces. We need to do counterterrorism. And yet... It is not a topic. People are arguing right. about it, but the yeah. candidates for president, and, and this is one of the powers that the president actually has. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of things that candidates argue about that the president really doesn't have a lot of power over. This is something the president has power over. Danielle, what can you not let go? Okay, so this uh, is an article from The New Yorker that landed in my mailbox yesterday. It's an article by George Saunders, who is one of my favorite fiction writers, but this is nonfiction. He went to a bunch of Trump rallies. To be clear, this article will annoy a lot of people. He is writing from, he's clearly, and he says so, writing from the perspective of someone who is liberal. Mm-hmm. So let's get that out of the way. I, there's a, a certain air of, who are these Trump supporters at times? And, it, and it's obnoxious. But <laughs> there is one analogy he uses that I very much love. He's talking about polarization in America. Polarization is a thing I've been obsessed with this election. He talks about the way that we perceive political events. The analogy he uses is this. He says, in the U.S., there are really two countries, left land and right land. I like that. All right. And he says, you know, these two countries, I'm paraphrasing, they 
Each one has different data sets, different philosophies, different mythologies. The way he talks about it is this. Let's say all the people in one land have only ever watched Game of Thrones. Let's say all the people in the other land have only ever watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I have not watched either of those. Who am I? Where do I live? Canada? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so the, he says the idea is this. Let's say both of these people look at a castle. What do they see? Given that one has only ever seen this bloody violent thing and the other one has only ever seen Frenchmen with outrageous accents, they're going to see things that are totally different and they're not going to be able to even have a conversation. This is what I cannot let go this week is this analogy. I like it. It, it speaks to me and it speaks to, you know, the way that our our media is siloed left and right. I really yeah. like it. I also recognize the irony of talking about siloed media while talking about a New Yorker article. I just want to say that <laughs> for the record. She is self-aware. I get it. I know. I irony like, on full display. I like the analogy anyway. It works. Okay. Cool. Domenico, what can you not let go? So I think because of the long holiday weekend... I got to go to be able to get away, which I haven't been able to actually go away for a weekend in a in a bit. And and you start you really do realize how in a bubble DC is. The things that matter inside the Beltway, the the, the narratives and memes. And you guys all know this when you go home. But when I, it just was striking to me that all of this stuff with politics, people already know who they're going to vote for. There are very few swing voters, you know? I think and, they're a myth. So and, what are we even and, doing And here? for the next five months, <laughs> there's going to be question. all of this, you know, stuff that is just the narratives that change almost because people have time to fill and they're going to campaign and our elections go on for so long in this country. And I think that's one of the things that we've talked about a year and a half of this election. And it's it's a you're it telling is a, me it is <laughs> you being on the road. I know it's hard, but it it's just striking. It's hard to let go when you when you leave here and you realize just how little a lot of this matters for the depth of which some people cover it. And I think that that I think that that it's good to reorient yourself to realize what is important. Yeah, Sam. So I did a story this week looking back on Hillary Clinton and. Donald Trump's previous relationship because uh, they knew each other for a while before they were both candidates for president, right? Uh, Bill and Hillary went to Trump's third wedding to Melania. Trump gave thousands of dollars to Hillary's campaigns and over $100,000 to the Clinton Foundation. So I, I do the story to be like, hey, were they actually friends back in the day? <laughs> over the course of this story, I talked to two Trump biographers, one of them, Michael D'Antonio, and he shared with me a little fun tidbit about Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, former golf buddies. And anyone who's read anything about Bill Clinton in golf knows that he cheats. So I teased Donald and I said, oh, yeah, Bill Clinton, did he cheat with you, too? And he insisted, oh, no, he's not a cheater. Sure, he might take an extra shot now and then and forget the one that he hit and put down another ball. But, you know, everybody does that. I, he's not a cheater. There so you that's have it. not cheating. So, so Trump, actually, Trump rules. So not, yes. so not playing by the rules is not actually cheating, there as long can, as it's reasonable. Do what you got to do. Or in his view. Then I this, was a statistician for my high school golf team. I believe that is, in fact, cheating. Wow. You were a statistician for, for your high school team? golf team. Your this is why I love you. Your high school golf team had a statistician position? This is well, why I love you. Well, this is how I got P.E. credit. Wow. <laughs> By using an Excel spreadsheet. Tam's like the Nate Silver of golf. Is this, is this separate <laughs> from the team manager? Because... Yeah, like, no, oh. I wasn't like getting water and stuff. Oh, wow. No, she's never that. So <laughs> <laughs> On that note, <laughs> that's a wrap. Let's just make it over. As always, you can find more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org and on your local public radio station. Please do us a favor and rate the show on iTunes if you like it. And find us on Twitter if you want to talk. Write us or email us a recording of you asking us a question to nprpolitics at npr.org. And a special shout-out to NPR's very own Maggie Penman for producing this week's show. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Domenic Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Mm-hmm.